Thank you, Justin. All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, if, uh, if, if you were a little put off by whatever was happening up front, that would be Seth Erie going up to random people and pulling on their hands until they jump with him uh, to the music. So that was what was happening there. Uh, we want to encourage jumping in our services. We just, just in general, jumping is a good thing. Now, my name is Mike. I want to welcome you. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, so that means uh, next Sunday is Easter. Now, that is a big deal around here. Uh, and kind of everywhere, but we particularly uh, desire to throw uh, a, a pretty significant party for all the guests that we have and for all of us. And, and so what we're going to do is um, I want you to take out this bookmark. This bookmark is all the information you need to know. It is split into two halves if you go to the back side. You've, you've seen this already. So there's a place there uh, to pray for folks. We believe uh, we still live in a culture that around Christmas and Easter, there's this cultural kind of residue where people will engage in faith communities differently than they do other times of the year. So we think this is a, a, a huge season for mission. We want to encourage you to take the top half and pray for some folks. The bottom half is the actual invitation. And if you flip it to the front side, um, you, all the details of what we're doing and, uh, and where we're located are found there. You also got... One of these. Now this, let us walk through this together, brothers and sisters, at 10, 12 in the morning on Palm Sunday. Now, woo! we have something uh, called a Good Friday experience that is happening Thursday and Friday. That's why it's called a Good Friday experience, because it's not just on Good Friday. Um, but it, Good Thursday didn't have the same kind of ring to it. So we're going to go with Good Friday. And, and what we've done before, and, and we try to do different things, uh, because this is, these, these are stories that we're familiar with. We're actually going to kind of decorate the de-amphitheater and the gym. We're actually going to have an experience that you walk through and participate in different stations. Uh, it is for families. We can take groups of 50 through at a time. So it's just, it's open from... Uh, for like four hours on Thursday night, four hours on Friday night. Uh, if you have families, there'll actually be a sheet given to you about how to lead your family through it. It's communion, prayer, different reflective stations, different scriptural stations. So highly, highly encourage you to take advantage of that. And then Saturday night, start our Easter services. Now, if, you're, if you feel violated about going to a Saturday night service on Easter weekend, just know that Saturday night, it's Sunday in Israel. Okay. <laughs> So you're good. You are covered. That is totally legit. So we've got a 5 o'clock Saturday night service. We have a 6.30 in the morning sunrise extravaganza in this room. Uh, choir, orchestra, organ. Um, we have at 8.30, a, no, yes, 8.30, 10, 11.30, the normal times. Now look at me. Look at me. Look around you. Do not come at 10. Do not. Now you can, and, and God will love you, and Jesus died for you, but if you are a regular part of our church, can I, can I please, please, this, this, this is Palm Sunday jammed. The commons is full. I mean, we just don't have room at this hour. So would you be, would you be willing to come earlier or later? Uh, would you be willing to park, not in your normal spot, but we've got some parking options listed here for you. We have a prayer walk we're doing Saturday, if you want to join us as we pray for our campus. But our Easter services are what we always do. We uh, proclaim and demonstrate the good news of the resurrection. So we're going to have baptisms. 
uh, like we do every year. Um, we're going to give people opportunity to say yes to Jesus. We're going to give uh, people the opportunity to share their story. So it's a really, really big deal. We need your help. For those of you that have the EV Free app, which would be all of you, of course, the EV Free app, not a boy. See, angel shirt to church. How great is that? <laughs> and he has the app. So one of us has the app. You can sign up. We still need help. So the invitation is that you would come one and that you would serve one. So we need help with children's parking, volunteers. And we just, and why do we do this? Because I still keep meeting people who will say, hey, I came to the church on Christmas. I accepted Jesus. I'm now part of the church. Um, So we just think there's something to this that is super important and worth all of the effort we go through to do it. Also, if you want to be baptized, drop, uh, drop me an email and I'll make sure to get you in touch with uh, whoever leads the baptisms, which is Aaron. I know who it is. I'm just saying the person that leads them, you will now be in touch with. All right, go to the book of Daniel. Let's do this. Daniel chapter seven. Now what we're going to do, we're going to do something a little different. Well, we've been in a series in the book of Luke since the beginning of time. And we are in Luke chapter 11. And in Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And so we've paused over this teaching his disciples to pray for, uh, for a few weeks. First week, we talked about how prayer isn't the consumer sort of wish list thing that a lot of us think of. Uh, we read a lot of Jewish prayers aloud, if you remember. We talked about covenant versus contract prayers and all those sorts of things. The next week, we talked about chutzpah. Remember that? Chutzpah, right? Audacity, boldness. It's a beautiful concept. And why? Because as Austin talked about last week, we pray to a father in heaven. This week, though, uh, we want to look at what happens when chutzpah doesn't work. Now, this is Bonnie. Bonnie is the director of research uh, at EV Free Fullerton. Now, we have three different live teachers, usually during the course of a weekend. And so Bonnie is a Fuller Seminary grad. What's your degree? What is it? Oh, M-A-T. M-A-T? Yeah. For T? Masters for theology. Masters of theology. Nice. Uh, and so, so Bonnie does a lot of our Greek and Hebrew work. She gets ahead of where we're at. But I want to, so she and I are going to tag team. So I'm going to do the first part, the part that you're going to get mad at me at. And then she's going to come and, uh, and seal the deal. Now, I'm stepping into horribly controversial waters. All right? And over the last year, I've learned that you feel quite free to disagree with me. So feel that freedom, but email your questions to bonnie.lewis at EV. All right, Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel is a strange book. And, and normally we think of Daniel in the lion's den and, and, and those sorts of pictures, and it's, it's true, but the, the core of the book of Daniel is a series of visions and interpretations that Daniel receives. So the, the core structure of the book is Daniel sees something and he needs it explained. He sees something, he needs it explained. So chapter 7, as an example, I should probably go there myself. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel, filling time to get to Daniel. Daniel's a great book, rhymes with Nathaniel. Daniel chapter 7, after Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Daniel 7. There we go. Verse 15. So Daniel sees something, and the text says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through me, or that passed through, ah, let me start over. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. 
I approached one of those standing there, now this is a reference to an angel, and asked him the meaning of all this, so he gave me the interpretation of these things. Daniel sees something, he needs help understanding it. Flip over to chapter 8, same thing happens. Chapter 8, verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. Now this is a reference to a divine messenger, an angel, if you will. And I heard a man's voice from somewhere calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Gabriel is a very well-known angel in the Bible. So, Daniel sees something, he needs help interpreting it. Now, this kind of routine gets interrupted in chapter 10. Go to chapter 10. Verse 1. Notice... In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who also had a Persian name. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to Daniel in a vision. But then Daniel speaks autobiographically here, and he said, and notice, at that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until three weeks were over. And then he says, on the On the 24th day of a specific month, after three weeks, an angel appears. So Daniel had seen the vision, and for three weeks he'd been mourning because no interpretation had been given. Notice Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. The angel shows up and says, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were what? So three weeks ago, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Now, the prince of the Persian kingdom is not the literal prince of Persia. Say that fast. The prince of the Persian kingdom is a reference to some sort of demonic power that had been fighting with this angel for three weeks. So Daniel gets this vision and says, hey, God, what does it mean? The angel shows up three weeks later and says, hey, just so you know, God heard your prayer, answered your prayer immediately, but for three weeks I was in a battle. Oh, okay, this clears it right up. Then Michael, trust anybody with that name. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, he's one of the archangels in the scripture, then Michael came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people and the vision of what will happen in the future. Now, is anyone else totally weirded out by this? So here is the story we're given. Daniel prayed. Answer was given. Three weeks go by before the answer can break through whatever war is going on around this. And it wasn't until the angel that was sent calls in the heavy artillery that the angel breaks through. And then right at the very end of the chapter, the angel says, oh, and by the way, I've got to go back now because we're at war with the Prince of Greece too. Oh, Okay. So in the Old Testament, there was a, an understanding that there existed a council of divine beings. Some were fallen, and some were still good, and that they were at war. Now, what we want to talk about this morning is this simple question. Let's say we have two children from two families, Jack and Jill. Let's say both of these children are very young, both come from Christian families, both have a disease that is life-threatening. Jack dies. Jill is miraculously healed. 
And Jack's parents want to know why. When God healed that one, why didn't he heal my son? We want to look at three different answers. Two bad, one good. Are you ready? First bad answer, and hence the disagreement will begin. First bad answer is that some will say, oh, well, that was just God's will. That was just God's will. God willed to take one life, and he willed to spare another. Now, is that possible? Well, of course it's possible. But the scripture also teaches that there are other wills that are done on earth besides God's. Correct? Why would Jesus have us pray, God, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if it already was? And I've met some well-meaning Christians who will say everything that happens on earth is God's will. So rape and murder and genocide and holocaust and drug addiction, spousal abuse, deformities, diseases, all of those are God's will? I'm not so sure. Because the picture painted in Daniel is there's other wills involved, evidently. Right? And in fact, if you fire up the iPad... You'll see things like this. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. Now, it sounds like you can reject God's purpose, right? If you just take that, it just sounds that way. God's purpose was that all of Israel would come to repentance, be renewed in the covenant, and then be salt and light to the rest of the world. But some rejected that purpose. Or Isaiah, speaking of Israel... Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are what? Not mine. Now, this could be a whole, like, 17 zillion week series in and of itself. Because God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it has been done on earth as it is in heaven. But in this season, for whatever reason, God brought forth creatures and he told those creatures that they have a little bit of say-so. In the Garden of Eden, they had say-so. In Israel, they had say-so. In the church, they have say-so. So not everything, I'm not comfortable saying everything that happens is God's will. In fact, go to Romans chapter 8. Notice how Paul phrases this, I think, beautifully. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this very famous verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that in what? All things, God works for the? Of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And then it talks about foreknowing and predestining. And those are very interesting conversations. But in this moment, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, this is what you can be convinced of. That God will work all things for the good. It doesn't say all things are good. Correct? It says he will work to the good. And in fact, he's such a genius at taking evil and turning it into good. We will be tempted to look at the good that comes from evil and think that he willed the evil to get the good. But the scripture tells us there is no darkness in him. There's no deception. He does not test us, tempt us. He does not bring evil upon us. So we can be assured of three things. The Bible is unilaterally affirming three things. Number one, God is good all the time. Number two, evil is evil. It's not pretend good. It's not good in waiting. 
It's really evil. Things, you don't have to say, oh, it's all right. No, it's evil. We're called to lament and grieve evil. But the third thing we're committed to is God's relentless commitment to bringing good from evil. So can we say with 100% certainty to Jack's parents, well, it was God's will. My dad was withering away from bladder cancer. Some well-meaning folks came in and said, and looked at me, looked at him. He's in utter agony. He's drugged out of his mind just to handle the pain because it spread to his bones. And they go, well, it must be God's will. And I just go, I don't know what Bible you're reading. God's will seems like Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. The rest of it was our screw-up. And God's will is bringing good out of that. So my dad's death isn't wasted. Now, feel free to disagree. But I don't think we can say with 100% certainty, well, we just know that was God's will, to take Jack, spare Jill. God's will isn't a blueprint that exists in the future. Although God knows the future clearly. God's will, when we use that phrase, it's a statement of his purposes and character. So when you're praying for God's will, we're not praying, hey, out of, God, give me the blueprint you've already determined is going to happen. It's instead saying, God, what best aligns with your purposes and character as they're being played out in my life? Now, lots will disagree with that. Hallelujah. Have fun at lunch. Now, (laughs) second bad answer, because I mean, seriously, I need to nuance that all over the place. Second bad answer Well, Jack's parents didn't have enough, what? Faith. So, first answer says, well, God just said yes to one and no to the other. And maybe. The second answer says, well, Jill's parents had faith. Jack's parents didn't have enough. And there are passages that look exactly like this is how it works. Right? How about Mark 11? Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it's yours. Now, is this taught today in Christian circles? Oh, in some places, absolutely. Name it and claim it is how we say it shorthand. And I've had people say to me, listen, God's will is never for you to be sick. So the only reason you're sick is because you don't have enough faith to be well. Okay. And they'll quote this passage. Or how about the time when Jesus was in his hometown and couldn't do miracles for their lack of faith? I mean, here it is. A prophet is not without honor in his hometown, Jesus said. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of He even tells them when they can't cast out a certain demon that they didn't have enough faith to do it. So clearly, faith matters. But that raises an interesting question. What exactly is faith? Americans believe faith equals psychological certainty. So I've got to talk myself into being absolutely sure that I'm healed and that I'm healed. And people will say that to me. The Bible teaches that faith is something far different. The Bible teaches that faith is commitment. It's fidelity. It's an action word. It's chutzpah. It's grabbing hold. It's not an intellectual exercise. 
So when I have faith in my marriage, I don't intellectually believe Justy will never cheat on me, but I live as if Justy would never cheat on me, nor I her. It's covenant fidelity. That's what faith means. When I get on an airplane, am I 100% psychologically certain that sucker's not going down? No, right? Not after this week. I mean, I haven't seen the plane. I don't know avionics. I don't know who the pilots are. In general, I can say planes are safe. And so, as an expression of that, I step onto a plane. But it's not psychological certainty there. It's the stepping onto the plane that's the faith. Do you understand the difference? Which means that so many of the biblical promises given to us about faith are not formulas, though we wish they were. They're principles you step into that are most generally true. So for instance, now this is really complicated and Bonnie's going to bring it and so I got to hurry up. There's a, a promise in Proverbs. Raise a child up in the way they should go and they will never depart. Now what does my evil heart want to do with that? I want to turn that sucker into formula, right? My job is to raise them up in the way they should go, therefore they will never depart. Is that how it works? I'm not so sure, because when they depart, if you take it as a formula, what are the only two options? The Bible's wrong, or you didn't raise them right. And I want to suggest, well, there's a third option. Namely, they've hardened their heart, and they've wandered away, even though you were a great parent. Faith does not collapse freedom. Faith is influence. Faith is not coercion. I cannot believe that God will the six million Jews. He could have easily zapped Hitler and the thing would have been done. So it's never an issue of power. It's always an issue of what kind of world did God create to, and the kind of beings he wants us to be. So, what about the saying, if you take a mountain and throw it into the sea? Well, Jesus often uses a very Jewish version of something called hyperbole. And this is unnuanced speech. So when Jesus says, listen, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Well, we should all be walking around without eyes and without hands, right? If we're going to take that literally. But that has way more punch. Saying it that way has way more punch than saying, you know, listen, you guys need to take sin so seriously that you should do anything to avoid it. Right? It has way more punch to say, say to that mountain, go be tossed into the sea, instead of saying, hey guys, faith is so unbelievably important. God is looking for willing covenant partners, and when you demonstrate willing covenant partners, he meets you in that. That's not as punchy. It's not as punchy to say, listen, parents, raise your kids right. Raise them in the way of the Lord. And generally speaking, most often, those kids will stay in that way. It's way punchier to say, raise a kid in the way they go and they'll never depart. This is just something that, this is a very Jewish way of speaking, right? If you go to the Middle East today and you attempt to bargain with one of the shopkeepers, they will not say, you know, I really think your offer does not truly value what I'm offering to sell you here. They will say something like, you're spitting on my mother's grave by that offer. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's just, this is how you speak. So is faith 
unbelievably important. Yes! But please understand what faith is and looks like. Because as it turns out, Jesus' disciples doubted all the time. I mean, go to, go to Mark chapter 9 real quick. Oh, I have a 25-minute clock today, and it's just, I'm twitching. I'm twitching. Bonnie's got 10. That's why. Bonnie's got 10. Bonnie honors her time. Mark chapter 10. What did I say? Mark chapter 9. Always listen. Mark chapter 9. I'm in a great mood today. I'm in a great mood. It's just true. I, don't, I missed you. It's fun to be with you. It's Holy Week. Now, this. All right, let's go to verse 21, Mark 9. A child has been demon-possessed uh, since his like, earliest childhood. This demon throws him into the fire, the ground, I mean, all this stuff. So the dad comes and says, hey, Jesus, can you help? Jesus says, verse 21, how long has the child been like this? From childhood, he answered, it, the demon, has often thrown him, the boy, into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I love Jesus' response. What do you mean, if I can? (laughs) Everything is possible for the one who believes. And I love the guy. I love this. I am this guy. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. (laughs) Right? And Jesus heals the son. Now notice what happens next. Verse 28. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we, the disciples, drive this demon out? And notice his Jesus' reply. He doesn't say anything about faith there. What does he say? This kind can only come out by prayer. Now, my point is to say, yes, God's will, absolutely. Faith, absolutely. But then there are these other passages that present mystery. And they break our attempts to find formulas. And we do a great deal of damage to each other. When you're talking with the parents of a kid who just died while the parents... Who, uh, while another family has a kid that lives and is miraculously healed, we do great damage if we just flippantly say, well, it must have been God's will. Or you must not have had enough faith. Can I tell you the only biblical answer I believe is appropriate? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. God is good. Evil is evil. God will bring good out of evil. And I don't know why your son was not healed while their daughter was healed. I don't know. I mean, isn't that the book of Job, for crying out loud? The formula was, if you're righteous, you don't suffer. If you're wicked, you suffer. So here's the story of a righteous guy who suffers. What do you do with that? And God, I mean, after 40 chapters, I mean, read the book. It is painful. After 40 chapters of lamenting, crying out, and shaking fists, and questions, whatever else, God shows up in a whirlwind. And in response to some of the oldest, most fundamental questions of humanity, why does evil happen to good people? God says, consider the donkey. (laughs) And you're going, really? Where were you when I laid the foundations? In other words, hey, let's take the physical universe. How How well do you understand that? Oh, not so much? I don't know. 
is our best answer. Let's, let's do away with the cliches. Can we make this a cl- cliche-free zone? So when someone's suffering, we don't say, hey, God must have needed another angel. No, God doesn't have needs. He doesn't need more carpenters. He doesn't need more cooks. That's awful. How about I don't know? Let's start there. But we don't like I don't know. Because it requires something called faith. So Bonnie's going to talk about what life lives, what life looks like in the I don't know. Those two bad answers is how I have largely lived my whole life. So you can imagine it works really well when you're a kid or when things are going good, but as soon as something hard or painful happens, everything sort of falls apart. And all that came to a head in my life about two years ago. And uh, my husband's son and I, who was two at the time, my son was two, you're welcome, Um, he, um, we got news that my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was the first of our immediate family of someone who had an illness, and that was really painful for us and really hard for us. And as we're trying to sort through that, she lived in Colorado and we're out here, we're trying to sort through that, we start getting really sick and we start getting... Um, just sort of unexplainable illness, high fevers. We go to doctors. We can't figure it out. And this lasts for six months. All three of us sick all the time, and no one knows why. So at the end of six months, we say we've had it. We're jumping ship. We're going to Colorado. We're going to be by my mom, and we're going to get help because we need answers. We don't know why we're sick. And we get to Colorado, and something weird happens. We stop being sick. And we find out that our old house actually had mold underneath it, and it was black toxic mold coming up through the floors, and so we all had toxic mold poisoning, and that's why we were sick. And that results in, like, chronic sort of conditions or problems. And for me, what it looked like is chronic inflammation, which caused my intestines to inflame so much, they pushed up against my spine, I got two herniated discs, and I'm paralyzed for eight months. And that stuff is the easy stuff that happened. There are still some things that happened in those two years that I don't necessarily feel ready to talk about or sometimes pray about because they are raw and they are painful and they hurt. And I will affirm, Romans 8 is true. There are some things that God has taken out of those awful, horrible situations and made them good. But there are still some things that I know aren't going to get to be feel like they are good until I am no longer here and I am with Jesus in heaven. One of my favorite quotes by C.S. Lewis says this. He's at a funeral for his wife and someone comes up to him and says, I'm so sorry your wife died but at least you have your faith. And he looks at them and he says, my faith? Well, it's a bloody mess right now and that's all there is to it. Because it's true. When there is pain and there is hurt and there is tragedy, it hurts. Yes, God will work it out to evil. We know that for certain. But there is a space and a time period in the middle of that process where we are hurt and we are broken and that space we are totally uncomfortable with it we do not like grief we do not like the unknown we do not like i don't know and so we don't take it for ourselves and we also don't allow other people to take it 
We want to hurry up. We want the good to come now. And so we always address it with some sort of ambiguous silver lining. See, the lie that we've been telling ourselves and we've been telling each other as a church is that we paint God and faith so black and white, we don't leave room for gray, we don't leave room for mystery, and that leaves us feeling like joy in everything we have in Christ and grief in what we have lost, that we can't have those two feelings together. Or the feeling, I know that God has ultimate victory over death and evil, but right now, I feel defeated. We don't allow for people to say that or for ourselves to feel that. The other one is, I know that there's a future hope, that someday things will be made okay and good, but right now that's hard to believe and I feel in despair. And we serve a God that tells us differently. We serve a God that actually comes into those areas and says, I am here in that space. Take that space. You need it. Turn with me to John 11 and we see where Jesus does this. The background of this passage is that Jesus is, um, is met on the road by Mary and they find out that a beloved com- member of their community, Lazarus, has died. Something I want you to know about the Greek is Greek language is a lot more fluid than our English language and even modern Greek. It's just a lot more fluid because most of these stories are sort of oral traditions. So when they're talking, they're talking super fast. And any time there's a punctuation, especially at an odd point where it's a short sentence or after a big point of emphasis, it's because the speaker was trying to have a break in the story and give people a chance to respond and let it sink in. So John eleven thirty five. It's the one verse we're going to focus on for just a quick minute to demonstrate how Jesus comes into these places of I don't know for us. And so Jesus is walking and Mary comes up to him and she is grieving and the whole community is grieving. And what the text in Greek says is, gives this picture of everybody is weeping. He's weeping, she's weeping, everybody's weeping. Jesus comes along and the text says, Jesus wept, period. He doesn't go on to say Jesus wept and then this happened. Do you see that period? That, in the original language, has been passed down to us today as a placeholder for space. That Jesus wept, that is all he did. He sat with them as they were weeping and he wept. A few verses later, it says that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And for a while, that was a little bit confusing. Well, Jesus, why are you crying if you know he's just going to be raised from the dead? But isn't that the beauty of it? That we serve a God that acknowledges that pain is still pain, that hurt is still hurt, and loss is still loss, even in the face of resurrection. We have a hope that things will be good, but it's not a substitute for the pain we feel now. And Jesus, he enters into that grief with us, but only when we take that space and only when we give other people permission to take it for themselves. I referenced it before, but there are still things that I'm grieving over. So we're going to do something today, and I'm going to come down there and I'm going to do it with you. I'll be the first to stand. 
those of us that are grieving, we're going to stand up in that grief. Because we're not going to buy into the lie anymore that says that if we are grieving, we don't have joy. If we're sad, we don't have faith. We're going to stand in our grief. There are some of us who do have a condition that is debilitating mentally or emotionally or physically, and that's really hard. Jesus grieves for that in you. He's with you, he sees you, and he wants to sit with you there. Some of us have lost children or can't have any children. That's really hard. And I'll be honest, that's different for the women than it is for the men. But women, Jesus sees you, and he hears you, and he weeps for you. Some of us have broken family relationships. We don't talk to certain people that we hold dearly. The God of the universe sees you and he hears you. And some of us, I think we feel that our prayers have been answered, but it just wasn't the way we wanted it to. And we're tired of people telling us you don't have a right to feel hurt by it or to feel upset. And Jesus is there and he sees you. And he weeps with you. I think the biggest gift we can give each other for those that are standing is to be the hands and the feet of Christ. And what that looks like is that we stand up with them. Please stand up. Come alongside your brothers and sisters. If one isn't by you, then stretch your hand out and know that we are a people in pain and it is our privilege to stand next to those who are weeping as Jesus stands with us. There's a lot of power in facing these things together in facing the I don't knows and embracing the mystery. So we're going to sit in silence for a little bit and just contemplate that, that Jesus is with us. We grieve the fact that we do not know, but we do so knowing that we don't grieve alone. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who comes alongside. We thank you that you are a God who sees our pain, who takes pause and creates space for us to grieve and to enter into that grieving with us. 
We come before you and just surrender to the fact that we do not know. That we still trust you, even in the midst of pain. And God, we ask that as a community, we would be people that give people space to grieve. That give people space to live sort of in the tension and the ambiguity that sometimes happens in our story of faith. Lord Jesus, we ask that we can be the hands and feet of you that bring comfort, that bring joy, but most of all, just bring community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.